Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Premier Chelsea, your source for all things Premier League, but starting with Chelsea first. Coming to you on your speakers and headsets, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm one of your hosts, Jackie. I'm here with Rahul today, and Ben is back. Ben, I don't think I'm ready for the transfer drama that's going on, and that's <laughs> going to continue for the next month, but welcome back. Let's try something different today. I'll pass it over to Rahul, and we'll kick off with maybe some Premier League fun. Yes, so let's get started. Ben, we're about 30 minutes into the new Premier League season. I just looked at uh, the score here between the Arsenal Palace game. Uh, We wanted to get your thoughts and predictions for how the season is going to go. Obviously, there's still about three weeks of the window to go, so a lot may change. Uh, But who do you think is winning the title? Are we looking at City, Liverpool? Are we looking at a third, maybe Spurs or someone completely new that may not be considered at this point? You didn't even say Chelsea in your well, suggestions. You know, I'm I'm a little skeptical about this season. So I want to hear your thoughts and then I can obviously share mine. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to turn it on you guys and hear yours. I think that it's Man City for me again. They've had a fantastic window. Haaland is going to set the Premier League on fire, even though we saw him miss a sitter in the Community Shield. And then Alvarez, Phillips, and who knows, there's still the best part of four weeks left in the window. Liverpool have had a good window too. Really excited to see Darwin Nunez, but I just sense that Manchester City will defend their title and that Liverpool might fade a little bit, but by fade a little bit, I still see them being in the race for the title, heading down the stretch. And then I think, unfortunately for the other teams, there's a golf. So Chelsea are shaping up to have a nice window Tottenham have already brought in a flux of signings. How many of the six are in their strongest or starting 11, I think remains to be seen. And then Arsenal, for me, are the big improvers. Because if you put Gabriel Jesus's goals into their side last season, they would have finished above Spurs, in my opinion, even with Son and Kane on fire. And I think that they showed that in patches throughout last season where they were either brilliant or hair pulling out frustrating and not much in between, which is why from January, they only drew one game and they were either on a win streak or a lose streak. So I think coming back to your question, Man City to win the title, Liverpool to finish second, Chelsea will be third still. And then it's almost impossible to call between Arsenal and Spurs. But I think Jesus's goals will make the difference. Sinchenko's a good signing too. So on my list, I've got Arsenal fourth, Spurs fifth. And then again, it gets really interesting because is it Man U sixth? Is it West Ham sixth? Stamaka's a good signing. Maxwell Cornet has just joined as well. Yep. Not bad for 17.5 million, in my opinion. And then the unknown is Newcastle as well. Mm. So I think True. Manchester United might be the big casualties here. I can actually see West Ham United in sixth, Newcastle or Manchester United in seventh, and then obviously the other one in eighth as well. And I will get hammered if I put Manchester United, <laughs> even on a Chelsea podcast, down as low as eighth. So I'm going to go Man U seven and then Newcastle eight. And and I think a lot of, and Jackie, I'll, I'll come to you in a second. I think a lot of Chelsea fans would agree uh, with the top two. Uh, the third spot you gave it to Chelsea. And I, I said I was a little skeptical. I think it's because of just everything that's gone on this summer, right? With Right from the ownership that happened right at the end of May, Coming into June, we're still, we bring in Sterling eventually, we bring in Koulibaly, then we have the issues with Barcelona, which I'd love to hear your thoughts and your uh, interview with the president. Uh, but for me, I think we're just a little bit behind some of these other teams in preparation, going into the season, figuring out certain pieces. We announced Cucurella today, 
given all of that, plus the World Cup coming up in, a, in about three months, uh, I think we may start finding our stride by the time the World Cup comes, and that may break us down a little bit. And we're going to have a lot of players going to the World Cup. I think some of the other teams are going to have a lot too. But I look around our team and pretty much everyone in the 11 is going to be going apart from maybe Jorginho. So I think all of that, along with the World Cup, not sure what to expect, uh, will, will impact us a little bit. I'd love to see us finish third. That hurts me to say that. But third in a trophy, NFA Cup, Champions League maybe, uh, would, be, would be good for me. Jackie, I don't know what you, what you think about what our chances are for this season yeah look i love that ben spun it back on us and said you're not going to put chelsea in the running for the title (laughs) but the honest truth ben i think is based on the last couple of seasons realistically there's a bit of a gap to make up and so the goal at least from my perspective as a chelsea fan is to close that gap now if we get to second i'd be ecstatic but just being in and around the title race towards the end of the season i don't want us to be out of it so early on that we are just watching and seeing who's going to to finish but uh, it'd be interesting to watch. I think Darwin Nunez is an ex- extremely exciting player and, and slightly different profile to what Liverpool have had in recent times. And so while Man City could potentially retain this title, I think it'll go down to the last few weeks again. So it's going to be interesting for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so let's, Ben, let's, we've looked at the top end of the table. You gave us a little bit more than, than the top four. Uh, I noticed you didn't put Leicester in there and that, that may be a whole episode <laughs> on its own with everything going on there. Uh, but in terms of relegation, we have three new teams that have come up, Bournemouth, Fulham, and Nottingham Forest. Um, what do you make of those three and their chances for survival? Nottingham Forest, I think, have brought in up to like 14, 15 players, which is quite a bit to integrate and get into uh, into the team. But who do you think are the main front runners for the, the relegation spots? I think that Leicester are in big trouble. Whether or not we go down remains to be seen. I cannot come on any podcast and say Leicester are going to go down, even if the journalist in me fears that's the case. But Leicester won't be top half. That is all I will say on Leicester City Football Club as far as making a prediction, because they are my team, of course. But you look at the bottom and there's a few obvious contenders. I think Bournemouth will go down for sure. And Fulham are in my bottom three as well. And then from there, it gets quite interesting because Southampton are without Broyer and possibly without too many goal-scoring options other than that usual over-reliance on the set-pieces and the creativity of James Ward-Prowse. They could struggle. Everton, big, big threat of getting relegated. And even Leeds under Jesse Marsh may have problems because they've lost Rafinha and Calvin Phillips and they've replaced with Tyler Adams and Lewis Sinistera. Two really good signings, by the way, but there's no goals beyond Bamford and they struggled for goals last season. So I think that those are the main contenders for me. Brentford will be okay. In my opinion, so will Wolves, even though some people think that they may struggle because they were brilliant in the first half of the season and very poor down the stretch, but I think Bournemouth and Fulham for sure. And then I've actually got Everton as the third team to go down and Forest staying up by the skin of their teeth, which doesn't please me either to say as a Leicester City fan. And yet it is kind of good to have them back in the Premier League and get an East Midlands derby. Really good transfer window for them. I think that Jesse Lingard will actually be a highly effective signing and make the difference between keeping them up and sending them down. So the ones that I've got on kind of relegation watch are Leeds and Southampton, dare I say Leicester. But the teams that I actually think will go down 
are Bournemouth, Fulham and Everton, and then fourth from bottom, Nottingham Forest. Then I would say Leeds, maybe. And then at that point, it's so congested in the middle of the table that it could be almost anybody. Yeah, and, and I think those would be most of everyone's picks. Everton is an interesting one because you, from what they went through last season towards the end of the season, you think they would try to steer away as much as possible. But uh, with the lack of goals, uh, Richarlison sold on, Dominic, Dominic Calvert-Lewin injured now. Um, that seems to be an area that they need to solve or identify to solve in the, in the next few weeks. Having said that, we play them tomorrow and that may all come back and haunt me because they may end up scoring and, and we don't. Uh, but that's the beauty of, of the Premier League, right? Uh, in terms of managers, now you've identified three teams that may go down. We look at Frank Lampard at Everton. Um, do you think he makes it through the, to the end of the season if they continue to struggle as we're predicting here? Uh, or do you think Everton say you're a man no matter what happens? I think that Lampard is Everton's long-term plan, but there's so much turmoil and instability and distaste that it's tough on him because he's so young. And when he's been asked to get big results, not just to Everton, sometimes he's failed. And the most, I think, apparent version of that was at Derby County at the other end of the table where it looked for all the money in the world, like he would be getting them promoted and they failed at the last hurdle. So this is the challenge, really, that if Everton are struggling midway through the season or shortly after the World Cup, then the owners have a decision to make. And if they don't believe that he has the experience to take the club through, you start looking at different names. And irony of all ironies, of course, because who is right for Everton if you're purely going on Dumwell as a manager and gaining experience and might be open to a return it is of course Wayne Rooney and he sort of dismissed the links before Lampard joined and now he's gone off into the MLS with DC United another club that he you know knows well but that is one to sort of watch longer term and then shorter term are they just going to need somebody with a little bit more experience and of course at the back of Everton's mind at the moment although I think by the time they get to a point where they have to make a decision on Lampard if things don't go well he won't be a free agent you've got Mauricio Pochettino as well and wouldn't he be a good fit for a club like Everton there'll be bigger clubs in terms of their history and position in the table as well that I think will be interested in that particular manager but this is the sort of challenge for Everton in my opinion that what they've got is the season starting with financial turmoil and instability. They've not got in everybody that they would have liked at this stage, still some time left in the window. And of course, they've lost Ricarlison. So when you add up all of that, it is a recipe for taking a step back. And they very nearly took such a step back last season, they went down. So if they're in a weaker position this season, then they've either got to be hopeful of the fact that weaker teams have come up and they can kind of consolidate where they were, or they're going down. And that's why the last few days or weeks, at the time of recording anyway, of the window, are vital for Everton Football Club. So let's see, but I don't think Lampard's job is by any means 100% safe, even though before a ball is kicked, it's a bit unfair on a manager to be kind of putting the axe over their heads because you know, Everton have a strategy around Lampard. They want to keep him. They want it to work. They want to keep him for many, many years. They're not looking around at the moment. But 
10 bad results or a stretch of a lack of points over that volume of games. And suddenly he goes from long-term to short-term to out of work very quickly. And that's just football. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. I think the World Cup in itself presents an opportunity for club football to, to sit back and take a look at what has happened over the course of the first three months of the season and what else they can do to influence where they end up uh, for the rest of the season. Um, in terms of the World Cup, this is the first of its kind, right? We've never actually gone through a season where we break, go away for a full-blown tournament, uh, international tournament, come back and continue a season. Are you expecting any difference in terms of the way players are managed, players play as we get closer? Tuchel was talking today about, um, you know, players may start thinking about themselves as we get closer to the World Cup. And then coming out of it, fatigue, injuries, uh, and finishing a long stretch of the season. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that real quick before we I turn it over to Jackie for some transfer stories. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that there's a few ways of looking at it. The first thing is obviously just the simplest, the mid-season World Cup. So in the weeks before, there's going to be an element of minutes management or trepidation from players, even if they play. And allegedly, the big six dodged playing each other at their request. And that's why in the week before the World Cup, we don't see any what's called flagship fixtures, which is ridiculous, by the way, because the Premier League should not be pandering to the World Cup at large. The Premier League should only be making these decisions based upon what potentially Gareth Southgate and England want. And the England players are so dispersed that you can make arguments left, right and centre for who should play who from the perspective of benefiting England. But I think they just feel like if it's such an important game, whilst players have got one eye on the World Cup, it will lack entertainment or intensity or it will be more full-blooded and it will have more chance of injuries. And that is why Chelsea don't want to play Arsenal, for example, in the build-up to the World Cup. But for whatever reason, that has helped the bigger clubs like Chelsea because they may be able to play with respect on paper, even though there's no easy games in the Premier League, a, in inverted commas, smaller team and rotate and use some of the depth of their squad and allow the World Cup players some time off. So that is one impact I think we'll see where there's chopping and changing in the build-up to the World Cup. And then, of course, World Cup can provide injuries. And then afterwards, you have that scenario where certain players may have a form of fatigue. And yeah, the festive period is full-blooded and fatigue-generating. And a World Cup will not have any more games. And the vast majority of players will not play the maximum amount of games because they're not all going to be able to win the World Cup. So that's another thing that we look at the World Cup and the duration and the length. But you have group stage and then 50% go out. Then after that, you have the knockout stage and teams start falling. You also have scenarios where better teams earlier in the tournament win their first two games and rest a player for the third game. So unless you're going all the way through or unless you're factoring in the travel and still in the winter in Qatar, the heat and things like that into the mix, you could actually argue that a World Cup is less fatigue generating than a festive period in the Premier League. So I can kind of see it both ways. But of course, players are going to come back and they're going to have done something different 
and that will all play into the thinking of managers because they will see their players return and almost because the Premier League, unlike other European leagues, is not used to a winter break, have to redo an element of pre-season. Not because their World Cup players need the fitness, but pre-season isn't just about fitness. It's about the team being on the same page. It's about practicing set pieces. It's about preparing for your first few matches of the season rather than just one because you've got more time. And again, when the players return, there'll be a realignment on strategy that you wouldn't normally need mid-season. And there might be some tactical tweaks here and there that the club want to work on and wouldn't have had to work on if there hadn't been a World Cup. And part of that is also because players that are in their groove, momentum-wise, then might switch systems for their countries. Zinchenko is obviously a good example of that, even though Ukraine aren't at the World Cup, but he's the one that comes to mind because I've just seen him get an assist for Arsenal as we kind of speak during this show. And obviously, left-back, inverted left-back for Manchester City slash Arsenal now, but can also play in midfield and does so for Ukraine. And there'll be players like that that just have a different role for their country that sort of need to get back into the groove of what their club expectation is. So that's one aspect. But the reason why I don't think it will make that much difference to the football, I think it will change the transfer market. But on the football side is that let's not forget that there are five subs now and that allows managers throughout the build up to the season to manage minutes. And after the World Cup, it gives them more flexibility to take a starter, put them on the bench straight after the World Cup if they think the player needs it, but then still have that flexible tactical versatility to use more of the players. And I think that that little tweak will make a big difference. So I personally think that it's a good thing. We have a mid-season World Cup because when it goes, I think the Premier League are more open to a winter break. And I think that that in turn actually helps with the problem we have of fixture congestion and fatigue in football. So I want to see some festive fixtures, but I think a break makes a whole lot of sense. And if a World Cup, even though it's the opposite of a break, gets us to that break in seasons to come, then I think that only benefits football and particularly the health and well-being of our footballers in the process. And maybe this is what it needs, a World Cup to force the break in the season that will then be left in the calendar. And if that's the case, then I think the footballers, the Premier League, and even the fans in terms of the quality they'll see and the best players playing week in, week out will all benefit because of that break. Yeah, those are some some excellent points and a whole different perspective that uh, fans like myself, and I, I don't speak for Jackie, or aren't maybe thinking about. So I, I really appreciate that, Ben. Uh, I'll hand it over to Jackie because he does want to bring it back to the transfers. We still have a few weeks to go here. So, Jackie, I'll, I'll give it to you. Yeah, and just before jumping into the transfers, Ben, I must say I do appreciate your insights into other things going on in the Premier League. Sometimes as Chelsea fans, we, I don't want to say turn a blind eye to things, but we don't pay attention in detail. So your analysis of Southampton particularly was very interesting to me with losing Broha and maybe not having that front power that they usually used to. So if I was a betting man, maybe I'd put some money on them going down, but I'm going to, the Premier League's a dangerous place to bet on. So I'm going to hold back on that for now. <laughs> uh, transitioning into the transfer market, I want to open up with Leicester because Chelsea are linked with your club. Again, we seem to come to Leicester every few years to pick up the cream of the crop from you guys, unfortunately. <laughs> and this time we're coming in for Fofana. I know that there's a lot of conversation around him. Before I get some of your insight, I just wanted to point out that from our perspective, at least mine specifically, he's 21, had one full season with Leicester, and then unfortunately had an injury there that derailed him a little bit. But numbers coming in at 60, 65, 70 million, 
What can you tell us there? And is there, is there any interest from Leicester to pick up a Chelsea player? I've heard Callum Hudson-Odoi is on the books as well. Callum Hudson-Odoi is the one that Chelsea would be willing to let go, I think. And in addition to that, Leicester have had a historical interest in him. Mm-hmm. So it makes a lot of sense. But I think what people are wrongly concluding is that anything is advanced enough in the direct club-to-club dialogue that would have Chelsea having the foggiest what Leicester may or may not ask for. So internally at Chelsea's end, of course, they're considering these possibilities because they would either like to get the fee down or alternatively, it's just common sense planning that you always look at the different eventualities and they explored that with Colwell, even though it was a separate negotiation when Mark Cucurella arrived. So this is very normal. But to reiterate, at the time of recording, during an Arsenal game on a Friday night UK, the Chelsea end are bullish about getting Fafana. Number one target. They don't want to stop. They want to keep forcing the issue. But Leicester are not there going, brilliant, glad you've got that offer. Let's have a cup of tea and discuss it. Here's what we want. Leicester have been clear on their valuation and clear on their not-for-sale stance. And the first bid was near instantly rejected. And then from there, the current situation, although it's changing by the hour, but again, at the time of recording, is that Leicester feel like Chelsea will keep pushing. And Chelsea's latest point of doing that is over 70 million English pounds. Now, a little known thing about the transfer window is that bids are disputed and the reason they're disputed is because sometimes they start verbal and very often when a buyer and a seller have a rejection then they deny it especially if it's verbal so sometimes you'll hear second bid sometimes you'll hear third bid and this is part of the gamesmanship of the window that if they're verbally discussing a figure unless to dismiss it then was it a bid and if it wasn't put in writing even if it was really advanced and really well discussed, was it a bid? So Jules Kunde, so much of that was verbal, but it was clearly a bid. But there are disputes over that. And this is the reality of the window. So I would encourage fans not to get fixated on the number of bids or whether the bid is written or verbal. I would encourage you to look at the number. And the number at the moment is over 70 million. And that is very high for Fafana, but he only signed a contract in March and Leicester have got all the control. Don't look at what Fafana does on social media. Just make peace with the fact, positive peace, that Fafana wants Chelsea. But factor in that if he thought he could easily get the move without significant negotiation, then he wouldn't need to be taking all of these cryptic actions on social media. He would be going to his football club and saying, I would like to leave. Can you please help me facilitate that? Because it's right for my career. And he can't have his cake and eat it because he signed the contract. And in that contract, there was a gentleman's agreement that Leicester City would listen to bids in 2023, not this window. So Leicester were not expecting this, but Chelsea's defensive needs has triggered the interest and escalated the situation far more dramatically and quickly than I think even Leicester were expecting talking to sources anyway. That's my understanding. So we'll see whether 70 plus million is enough or whether Leicester hold out for 80, which is likely to still be their minimum. And we'll see whether Chelsea are prepared to pay it. My understanding is that Chelsea are not going to give up. So therefore, by implication, if 
this bid is rejected, they will come back with another bid. But naturally, Leicester sense that. And this is the, again, challenge of the negotiation that Leicester keep rejecting. There's a long time of the window left. And eventually, either Chelsea are going to have to pay some astronomical fee or they're going to agree something between 80 and 85 million with Leicester, which many would still call astronomical. And Leicester are going to be the big winners from the negotiation. And then everything depends on how well Fafana develops and whether he becomes an elite level centre-back. I think he's almost there as a Leicester fan, but as you say, he's had injury problems. He's not played that many games. So there's a lot of moving parts, but the short answer to the situation is Chelsea needs to keep bidding and big. And eventually they will hit a number, despite Leicester's not for sale stance, that tests the resolve of the football club. And when they hit that number, things will reverse. Because right now, whether Leicester believe he's not for sale or not, Leicester wait because Chelsea just bid, 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 bid. And if Leicester keep hold of the player, it's a win. And if Leicester get an astronomical fee and they are persuaded to sell, the very fact they're persuaded to sell tells you financially they see it as a win as well. So they will reject and reject and reject, even if it's verbally, even if a series of bids are denied, until a point where a number is hit. And then it flips because once that number's hit, then Chelsea are entitled to stop and say, well, now we've hit the number that we believe is the correct valuation that you want. It's above market value, but Leicester are entitled to price them above market value. At that point, Leicester's bluff, if you like, has almost been called. And then we will find out, and Chelsea, more importantly, will find out whether the football club are bluffing Mm. about not for sale or whether he is actually not for sale. And that changes the dynamic of the negotiation once more, because then if at 85 million Chelsea are rejected and instantly, then they will then have to reconsider because they will start to believe that the player is genuinely not for sale. Right now, Chelsea believe with Fafana buy-in on top that he's very much for sale. Brendan Rodgers says publicly he's not for sale. And there is a competing narrative that will not be clarified until Chelsea hit a certain number. My personal opinion is that early 70 millions is not a high enough number. And that's where we're at at the moment. But I also firmly believe that Chelsea will come back soon with an even higher offer. Yeah, some incredible numbers, especially for a 21-year-old. And and I was going to ask, Ben, but your insights have been very, very clear on what you think of Fafana and where he's going to be or where he's at right now. But additionally to all that, I really appreciate the differences between what's a verbal bid versus what's a written bid and what's going on in the background. I think it just gives a little more idea to us fans about how the transfer market works and what's going on in there. But you personally, just a quick question for you. Do you like Kalamatsu Nodoy? Do you think he's going to fit into Leicester if he becomes part of the deal? I think that Hudson Nodoy can fit into the system. There's absolutely no denying that. But the reason that swap deals or two separate deals negotiated concurrently don't always work is because Hudson Odoi might be liked by Leicester City, but that doesn't mean that he's the number one choice. And it doesn't mean they're prepared to give Fafana over in order to get money plus him. So that's one challenge. What I like about Hudson Odoi is that he can play in the centre, the left or the right of midfield, which obviously allows for tactical versatility. He's only 21 years 
of age as well. He's got decent ball control. He can cross the ball. He's got excellent acceleration over short spaces. So that side of things, I really like. I think that his vision is okay, but can be improved. I think that his strength, his work off the ball, and how he reacts to a counter-attack are all areas that can be improved. And Leicester like their midfielders, regardless of if they're attacking midfielders, defensive midfielders, traditional midfielders, wide midfielders, it doesn't really matter. They like their midfielders to defend. So if you take Hudson-Odoi on the wing, he's got to defend. If you move him slightly more centrally, he's got to defend. And that is an area where I think Brendan Rodgers would need a little bit more development. But what you're ultimately getting in Hudson-Odoi is a versatile player, a fast player, a young player, a capped England international. And it's all about how is he going to develop with the right game time? Because I think in 2020, 2021, and probably also 2019, 2020, he played over half of Chelsea's Premier League games. Last season, he played 15 times, I think off the top of my head. Anyway, he only scored one goal. Never been a goal scorer, by the way. So you don't buy him for goals. What you buy him for is the creativity, the versatility and the speed. And I think that Brendan Rodgers sees some of that in him. But Callum Hudson-Odoi is there and available for any team, in my opinion. So I'm not saying that Chelsea 100% want to sell him, Mm -hmm. but I would classify him as very much available for the right price, for the right bid. And therefore, you have to ask, why has he taken a backward step at Chelsea Football Club? And I don't mean backward step in the sense that he's got worse. There's reasons why he's not played that many games, of course. But I mean, in the sense that if you join Chelsea, as I think he did as an under 23 player in about 2017, and then by about 2018, 19, he played 10 times and then back to back seasons where he's far more integral. And then in all of that time and including last season, there was never and it's only my opinion, the consistency. So Leicester will be aware of that. And this is the challenge that two players, similar ages, completely different positions. Mm -hmm. But in Fafana, when fit, Leicester know they've got a young, reliable player. His baseline is more consistent. With Hudson-Odoi, not only are you not replacing Fafana if you chose to go down that line, and Leicester don't really need players in Hudson-Odoi's position, Unless, of course, they let Madison go. But if they let Fafana go, they're not going to let Madison go. Now, you could sort of argue that Ayose Perez surplus to requirements. But you know what? He finished the season okay, and he's had a decent preseason. And if he's got confidence, he's also inconsistent. But he could still do a job as well. So I think that there is appeal and there is historical interest. But the nagging doubt in my mind with Hudson-Odoi is that Leicester have looked at Odoi. They liked him a little bit in January but they didn't move. And it's the same manager. It's the same recruiting department. So just because Chelsea want Fafana, why would Leicester replace a defender with Hudson-Odoi just for the sake of it? And that's why I think it's possible, but I would still be very, very surprised unless the payment terms of the fee part are very preferable 
and not add on heavy, I'd be very surprised if Leicester got to 85 million using Hudson Adoy rather than two separate deals. And this again is another little unknown thing about the window that I can share that it's not only about the fee. Everyone says, oh, 85 million or oh, 80 million, it's astronomical. It's not about that always. It's not about the number. It's often about how the number is formed. So if you are saying to Leicester that you'll get to 85 million, either with add-ons and a DOI plus 70 million, 60 million even, and that's all up front, that's one payment, then that's a great deal. Whereas if you said 85 million or even 100 million all in cash, Fans would go like astronomical, ridiculous, crazy, outrageous. What are they doing? How is it within financial fair play? But that 100 million might be 45 million up front. Mm. I'm purely speaking hypothetically and in four installments. And then your other 55 million might be in add-ons. And those add-ons might be really, really difficult to get. And this is why a high financial offer isn't always a good financial offer i'm not really talking about for fun now but i do think it's really interesting and the bigger the club the more leverage you've got because chelsea have got football assets that they can factor into the deal and by football assets i mean if you want to create an add-on in your chelsea unlike leicester you can do a champions league add-on you can do a league add-on, you can do a winning the league add-on, you can do a Champions League qualification add-on, you can do a winning a trophy add-on, all of which is statistically more likely than, say, Leicester City winning a Premier League, even though, of course, we actually did do it with a little help from <laughs> Eden Hazard. So when fans hear a number, particularly an all-in number, I always encourage them to be aware that add-ons are sometimes guaranteed because it's just like 50 appearances for the club. And of course, at some point, Fafana will make 50 appearances for Chelsea if he joins. But what if 10 million of the add-ons to get you to the number are if Chelsea win the Premier League or if Chelsea win a Champions League within two years? Slightly less likely. Right. Let's hope it happens, but slightly less likely. And then similarly, what if the add-ons are if next season Fafana plays 75% of games in the Premier League? And then Chelsea can know they've got, let's say, Koulibaly and Silva and Cucurella that can play on the left-hand side. And who knows, Tuchel might not play with three centre-backs. He might play with the back four and then there's only two centre-backs. And then you're suddenly looking at an Aspilicueta and a Chilwell or a Cucurella and then Koulibaly and Silva and then Fafana can be dropped. And right. that is the kind of way that you can play it. And then suddenly you're one game short of whatever that target was. He only plays 37 Premier League games out of the 38 and you don't have to pay the money. Now, I'm talking purely hypothetically, but I want people to understand that Chelsea can creatively get to any number they like if the add-ons take you there, and they're almost gambling on those add-ons not coming off, or if the add-ons do come off, they can afford the add-ons, because right. if you say Champions League winning, if he plays and wins you the Champions League, you get so much income from that that you're happy to pay the add-on, and the reason you're happy to pay the add-on is because you've just got a boatload of money because the players helped you win the Champions League. So, again, it's not only about the number when pitching to Leicester City. It's also about the structure of the deal. Yeah, look, I think that this has been very, very insightful to kind of understand how this all works. And, and of course, it was, we were talking about Fafana and Kalamazan, but in general, to understand 
the little decisions that clubs make in and around making an offer and how that will end up being accepted. And now you understand as a club who has more success and more power, you can start to slide those little add-ons in there, which is absolutely interesting. But I want to shift our attention to Barcelona. We've talked about them before, Ben, on a lot of different things, specifically Kunde, but I'll throw some names out there. Frankie de Jong, Obama Yang, and maybe Alonso going the other way. How does all of this stuff kind of factor in? I think at the time of recording, Alonso is looking very likely to Barcelona. They obviously couldn't get Aspilicueta. Great mm. news for Chelsea that he stayed. And one of the first things I think I said on this podcast was that Aspilicueta would not force a move. Correct. He would not yep. make it acrimonious. He would remain loyal to Chelsea regardless of what happened. And then guess what? Despite the interest from Barcelona, Chelsea need him still. He's part of the glue of the team, in my opinion. And he signs that two-year deal. Great news. And it just alleviates a little bit more pressure, one less position that Chelsea imminently or urgently right. need to strengthen between now and when the window shuts. So that's great news all round. Alonso, I think, will go. That's my personal opinion, informed a little bit by being out in New York with Barcelona and talking to sources at Chelsea Football Club as well. Aubameyang, one of many. And Chelsea still need to determine the strategy here, whether they're going to buy older. And then that's kind of intriguing in itself, because if you're going for a Bamiyang, then Todd Bowley might come back to Thomas Tuchel and say, well, why not Ronaldo? Right. Slightly right. different. And obviously one's 33, the other's 37. But that is what I find really interesting, that there's this whole crop of players that loosely speaking, Chelsea have been linked with. A Bamiyang, some even say Vardy, and then, of mm. course, Cristiano Ronaldo. And if you're going to be short-termist and buy an out-and-out forward and focal point, then firstly, does that affect Raheem Sterling? Secondly, does that affect Kai Havertz? And thirdly, does it affect the overall system that Thomas Tuchel might play? And then for whatever you get from that player, it's short-term. And that might be what Chelsea just feel that they need. Yet then, at the other extreme, they've got Broya at the football club, who won't be happy if another player in a similar position to him arrives. So then, is he still permanently sold despite what we're hearing? Or can he be persuaded to be loaned out, which is not his first choice? That's a factor to think about as well. His role and how he would interact with an Abamyang, a Ronaldo, a Vardy, and so on. So that's kind of one part of the puzzle. And then, of course, Chelsea are looking to buy young, which is where their interest in, say, Benjamin Sesco right. comes in as well, along with Manchester United and many, many others. And I think it's strategic. A Chelsea looking to buy one young, one old. A Chelsea looking to buy one short term, one long term, in which case they want two attackers. Or is it a straight choice? And if it's a straight choice, then I think that Aubameyang makes some short term sense because it just adds a few goals and some creativity and goals, whether the fans like these players or not, might still leave the football club, particularly Timo Werner. Leipzig is looking likely. And then obviously Hakim Ziyech has been trying to negotiate his way out of the football club now that he's representing himself. So it might actually make sense to bring in two more. But with Aubameyang, there's nothing at the time of recording, again, that's been placed bidwise. It's just that the clubs are in conversations. And Barcelona, Chelsea, in so many conversations with so many different players that it's hard to really tell what the priority is. I know that De Jong is obviously being spoken about. And I've reported on this a lot, that Barcelona position, they like him. De Jong position, wants to stay. And then Chelsea position, 
they will not advance anything seriously until they get buy-in from the player. Sure. So if the player is saying he still wants to stay, then Chelsea are not going to do anything serious until they know that his mind can be changed. But the good news is my understanding, as I reported on Twitter, is that more open to Chelsea than Manchester United. But let's see. A lot can change still in the window. And the other challenge with De Jong is just that you're going to have to fork out 80 to 85 million euros and then possibly pay the 17 million or so in deferred wages. And then on top of all of that, if he gets his demands, it's a big if, he becomes pretty much the highest earner at the club. And Manchester United have offered him reportedly between 350,000 and 400,000 pounds a week. If Chelsea match that, he's earning more than Sterling. So it's a big outlay. Then if you add 85 million quid for Fafana, take the spending they've already got at this point, and they're already over 300 million and they still may need some more reinforcements. So that's where then an Abamyang over a De Jong, even though they're different positions, makes a lot more sense because midfield stacked and Jorginho is happy. Now Koulibaly's here. Kante is prepared to stay and still can offer something to the football club. Conor Gallagher's come back to the side as well. There's lots of these players that were, and I only mentioned those three because they're all in that same category of up in the air players when the window opened. Are Chelsea going to keep Gallagher or loan him out? Is Kante going to be sold? And is Jorginho happy? And are Juventus going to make a bid? But they're all there. So then if you add De Jong on top of that, then that is a stacked <laughs> midfield. Whereas with a Bamiyang, maybe you get a loan, maybe it's cheap, and it's a kind of win-win. Whereas again, with Ronaldo, the thing putting off the club from a financial perspective, regardless of Tuchel not really being that sold. But if Bowley wants him, the thing still putting the club off is the fact that man, you might demand a transfer fee, or if it's a loan, you've got high wages, or if you buy him, then who's to say he will take the pay cut that he's promising other clubs because it's Chelsea, he knows they've got money. And this is the one thing that sort of could undo them in this window. And I don't mean negatively for the season. I just mean a marginal thing that everyone sees Chelsea spend big. Everyone sees Chelsea spend either above the odds or be prepared to. Everyone sees Chelsea trying to learn on the job and do the best for their manager, for the men and women's team. But there's a window of opportunity for a player or a club to take advantage of that. Yeah. And that's the fear. And then if you end up paying that extra 10 million on a Kukurea deal, that extra 10 million on a new incoming, uh, like a Fofana, then by the time you then get to a De Jong and they ask you for an extra 10 million, have you exceeded your budget for either transfer fees or wages? And this is part of the calculation of transfer windows don't always work for one player. And even with Carney, who's one for the future, I've heard from many, many sources that that fee was high. That was deemed high by a number of other clubs. And one of the reasons it was deemed high is because there was no one else there at the table at the time. So Milan's interest was genuine. Barca's interest was an inquiry, but there was no one else that had actually put down money. So did you need to start with the 15 plus five fee or whatever the breakdown ended up being? Or was there a way of trying to get him a little bit lower? It doesn't really matter because at that level, whether it's 15 million, 16 million, 20 million, the reality is you've got a very good signing with a huge amount of potential. 
So it is a win. But if every single signing that comes in is cumulatively adding to the budget, whether it's value or not. By the way, I think that Sterling and Koulibaly were good value. So I don't think they can be criticised for overpaying for everyone. But eventually, whether you pay and it's 45, 50, 55, or whether you overpay and it's 60, 70, 85, the volume Chelsea need versus the maximum budget they can spend, you start to sweat a little bit over what you can and can't afford. And honestly, Ben, I think a few episodes ago, you had said it, very beautifully it's it's five million pounds it's not five pounds it's not a small amount of course to us playing fifa at home five million is five million but in the grand scheme of thing it's five million not five dollars and in that fashion i want to bring it back to Rahul and pass it over to him because we've got some questions coming in from some listeners and honestly it's in and around this topic it's outside of transfers but still surrounding what you've been discussing so Rahul, why don't you take it from here yeah and i think it's a it's a good segue to what you were saying about just the carney deal uh in the previous regime, it may, be, may have been handled a little bit differently in terms of the upfront uh, money. So uh, the question here, Ben, is the biggest difference between how transfer business is being conducted with Boley as kind of the, the spearhead versus Abramovich through Marina. Uh, and the other question is, we've heard you know Gary Neville say Boley is being like football manager, just going out and, and targeting every mm-hmm. other player. Um, does that feel like that's what's happening or is it more geared towards, well, we need certain characteristics or certain players in, okay, we didn't get Kunde, we didn't get Rafinha, let's go down the list and just keep targeting uh, others. So it's a two-part question, mainly about Boli, but how were things handled with Bo- uh, with Marina through Abramovich and compared to how Boli is doing it now? Well, I don't think there's much difference as fans think. It's a good question, but let's not forget that Mourinho is still there when needed, and so is Bruce Buck as senior advisor. So Bowley's not coming in and learning on the job in the sense that he's just walking into rooms completely blind. He's inheriting everything from the football department. The introductions, the scouting reports, the targets, and then Thomas Tuchel has transition from working with Marina to working directly with Todd Bowley. So there's not as much chaos as people think. The chaos is down to the fact they need six or seven and they're working hard and they're having to learn as they go as far as the different characters and relationships that are there. And it always makes me laugh because people say Bowley was pushing for Ronaldo. And that might be true because it's an extreme case where everyone knows Ronaldo and how much he benefits the brand. But some people have said, oh yeah, Bowley's really pushing for De Jong. I can 100% promise you, Todd Bowley hasn't got a clue about De Jong. And I don't mean that in a negative sense because it's not his job to have a clue about De Jong. I mean, technically, as interim sporting director, you would have that knowledge. But Bowley's not gone to Thomas Tuchel and gone, I've just had a great meal with Barcelona. And there's this player, Frankie de Jong, and he sounds great. Like, I really want to go for him. I've watched lots of him. He's got all the attributes you need. Todd Bowley is empowered by Thomas Tuchel. And then Todd Bowley has very experienced negotiation skills, is personable, has got no ego, and he knows how to get the job done. And I think he's proving that slowly during this window in a high pressured environment. But he's not coming up with the list. That's from both Tuchel with new authority and the old regime. And I think that Bowley 
is acting like a politician. And I, again, I don't want to be misquoted on this. I don't mean his demeanor is acting like a politician. I mean, if you think of how a politician works, they balance multiple things. And when they go into any meeting, their civil servants and their aides hand them a folder, which is a brief. And they read that information and they use that information. And then they are clued up, but the legwork's been done for them. And then when they sit down in that meeting, they know everything to say. And the person taking that meeting has no knowledge that an hour before or a day before or a week before, they were not that clued up. And that is the reality of how a politician funnels all the information when they have to take such a diverse array of meetings. And it's exactly the same with Todd Bowley, that when he goes into a meeting, he gets a brief, he gets an introduction, he gets all the information that he needs. He's got people alongside him. He's got football experts if he needs them. He's got Tuchel. And then off he goes, which means that things are not really that different to the old regime. It's just he's become the face of it. And the Marina Abramovich era was so faceless and distant from the fan base. And the secrecy was applauded because everyone just thought they were getting on with it and they liked the end result. Whereas Bowley is much more public, he's much more talked about, he's much more almost caricatured at times by social media and memes, both good and bad. And that is breeding this notion that he is somehow single-handedly running the football club, when the reality is, is that he's just continuing the old regime. Now, the only thing I would add to that, which is intriguing, is that this is a modern ownership group modern in the sense that they want to modernize the club, modern in the sense that they want a sustainable business model, model uh, modern in the sense that they want to rival Liverpool's recruitment model, which is why Michael Edwards is somebody that they've been in a very um, passionate talks with uh, on multiple occasions to try and get him as I've been reporting on Twitter. Um, but by being that modern, they've evolved because a lot of that group of successful businessmen and women in other areas. I'm thinking Danny Finkelstein, Barbara, Sharon, Johnny Goldstein, Todd Bowley, all of the clear late ones. So that's pretty much everyone on the board that I can think of anyway off the top of my head. And what they find is that the way the football club was run, even if it was succeeding, is not modern. So I think they've been quite surprised by the lack of basic data at the football club not just in terms of an appetite in the football department to use the data, but most football clubs will have very basic data on everything. Their rivals, uh, the teams they're going to play, the scouting departments, old targets, new targets, given up targets, future targets. And I just think that Chelsea are either behind on that or all of that data is secretive and will take time for the new ownership group to kind of decode. And by decode, I mean, they may have to find out how it was structured. You know, is it random? Was there a strategy to it? And to get those answers, they may need to directly speak more to Marina and even potentially Abramovich as well. And that's the other challenge that sometimes that data can even be outsourced. Um, I'm not really talking specifically about Chelsea here, but I'm thinking of Brentford and how they use external consultants they use people under the radar, they use stringers, they use intermediaries, they use betting companies. In fact, the guy that owns Brentford, Matthew Benham, has a betting company and the betting analysts kind of funnel over 
to take a dual role and they do a bit of betting and a bit of football and they almost have like two jobs in one because the data can kind of be the same in many respects. So I think that that's the new area where Bowley after this window won't just be learning on the job and won't just be trying to keep his head above water, which is the priority at the moment, but the learnings won't be him learning how to do the job. The learnings will be him saying, I did the job based upon the old regime's model. And these are what I think are the learnings to improve. And if there are failures, some of them will actually be down to the old regime and Bowley will look to correct them uh, through himself and through a new sporting director. And the final thing I think I'd say, which is really interesting, is that there's just never been this scenario before in football that I can think of where a new owner comes in, a new owner becomes chairman, a new owner becomes sporting director, then a new owner will hire the sporting director. And now that seems bonkers, but he's pulling it off somehow. But if you flash forward, how beneficial is that to the football club to be able to say when they recruit a sporting director, there will be two in particular of the owners, Baird Alagag Bali and Todd Bowley, and to some extent, probably Johnny Goldstein as well. But there'll be at least two of the owners that have actually done that job firsthand. And to have that insight of actually living a window in somebody else's shoes may not appear a positive now, but it is bound to be a positive going forwards because so many times there's a disconnect between owner and football department, owner and manager, owner and fan base. And even though owners and sporting directors have good relationships, often the owner isn't that clued up or they don't know that much about football or they don't understand the very basics of the negotiation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now you've got a scenario where Bowley can sit in a room with whoever he appoints as sporting director and say, I've been there, I've done that, which means that he will either understand and empathise or alternatively, he'll give a counterpoint that isn't informed by somebody that doesn't understand. When I was a consultant, I went into loads of football clubs and much probably like any office place after meetings, the owner would say one thing, sporting director would say another, they'd leave and they'd both chuckle at each other because they were like, he hasn't got a clue about what I do. And you're actually going to have a football club where practically half the Chelsea board understand how to be a board member, a sporting director, a negotiator. They've all got stronger relationships with Thomas Tuchel because they've been forced to interact with him on a day on day basis. And right now, that's not a priority. But I genuinely think when it all calms down, that is going to be massive for Chelsea Football Club, what they've been through over this window. Yeah, Ben, look, listening to you, I feel like I'm going through university and, and learning these courses and transfer business and how to run a club. Uh, your insights, your your level to detail and just your uh, ability to communicate, you know, how things work and, and how things are done is very, very helpful. Just not for me. I'm sure the listeners love it, too. Um, and yeah, I think you're right with Todd Bowley. It's been it's been chaotic, right? It's been a time where he's been thrown into he's come into a massive club he's come into a time period where yes we're in transition but Chelsea are Chelsea and are expected uh, to do good things to do and win trophies and and bring in players that uh, ultimately not only help the team on the pitch but also off the pitch like we've seen with Sterling Koulibaly um, and just to add to that I was listening to Thomas Tuchel uh, earlier today in his press conference and he did say that he has been pulled into things that he wasn't previously pulled into so that has taken more of more of his time 
and and it's good to hear in the sense that it adds up with what he was saying. You've been saying that he is more central in this whole thing with with the new owners, with the board, uh, because ultimately for the longest time, I think Jackie and myself and a lot of fans have felt a manager comes in, does well, doesn't do well, and it's it's gone, and we move on to the next one. Tupel seems like he's more involved and hopefully will be here and will influence this team, both first team, second team, and overall just the club. Um, that was that was the question we had. There was another question about Marina, but I think you, you've answered it within uh, the first question. I think I'm all set with all my questions. Jackie, is there any transfer business you'd like to address? I know we're, we're running short on time. No, honestly, Ben, I, I want to echo what Rahul says, because transfer business, we can read what you're posting on Twitter. There's a lot of news that comes out there. And obviously, when you come on here, you give us a lot more insight. But I think what you've done today is really open our eyes to how things function, how things work, and what goes on behind the scene. And I think that's a lot of value for fans that are listening. It's just to understand that these things take time. And looking at the new regime, it's not like Todd Bowley scrambling around. There is a process in place. And so I absolutely love the insight you shared with us today. Pleasure. Always enjoy coming on. And hey, the next time we speak, we won't be talking hypothetically. We won't be <laughs> debating the season. We will be reacting to the true. Everton game. And yeah. um, I will say right now, even though I know Chelsea fans fear going up to Goodison to some extent, I, in my fantasy team, have got Chelsea defenders. And I still believe, and this might be the time where I'm proven wrong pretty quickly, but I think Chelsea will keep a clean sheet at Goodison and get off to a winning start. I really, really do. Thank you for saying that. I love that because we're hoping for a winning start as well. (laughs) Uh, No, I I definitely hope that happens, Ben. And and once again, thank you very much. And thank you for jumping on, not just today, but throughout the summer. I know uh, you've had a busy summer and and, um, these obviously take up some of your day on Fridays, but we really appreciate it. Our fans appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. And that wraps it up, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Please continue to subscribe and like us. It's at the Premier Chels uh, on all podcast providers and on Instagram too. And on Twitter, it's at Premier Chels. And, and like we've been saying, Benson shares a lot of updates on his Twitter. So check it out. It's at Jacob's Ben. Uh, and we will be back with an Everton review. Uh, and then we'll follow it up with a, a, another episode with Ben next week. But until then, stay safe and up the Chels. Hey guys, the Premier Chels is sponsored by Kickoff Coffee. They are a top quality artisanal roasted coffee. In other words, they're Champions League winner and Premier League winner every single time. They deliver fresh bags directly to your home so you don't have to go to a coffee shop and pick up something. And the best part about them is every bag gives back to soccer charities. 10% of the proceeds go to organizations that use soccer to promote youth social development in the underserved areas. Use our code TPCOFFEE15 to get 15% off your order. You can order at kickoffcoffeeco.com or check out the links on our social media. Thanks.